Well, I don't know if you heard about uh, this story a few weeks back. Uh, it was in Chicago, and the Washington Post, I'm reading a report from them, and it says in their report, it says, just after midnight on Friday, this is back around November 19th or 18th, just after midnight on Friday, six people were descending from the 95th floor of Chicago's 875 North Michigan Avenue building, which used to be called the John Hancock Center, uh, a 100-story skyscraper, uh, formerly known as the John Hancock Center, when they heard it, this clack, clack, clack sound, and as one tourist told the CBS station in Chicago, it was a loud sound that described what you realized was going to be one of your worst nightmares in an elevator. They had gone up to the 95th floor to visit a swanky restaurant. Swanky. That, that, that's a word we use a lot right now. Uh, but anyway, I've been up there. It's a wonderful restaurant because you go up to the top of the John Hancock building at night and you just can see all the beauties of the city of Chicago. You don't see all the, the problems, you just see all the beauty of that wonderful city. Uh, but they went, there's a restaurant on the 95th floor, and it overlooks the skyline, and they had chosen the express elevator. I might have been on that elevator one time uh, when they went on their way down. But suddenly, it started moving a little too fast for comfort. Anybody hear about this in the news? Well, good. This is, this is see, I'm providing you a public service this morning by getting you updated on the news, all right? So it started, the tourist said, it started to get bumpy like an incoming flight to Chicago. A Northwestern University law student who was in the elevator told the Chicago Tribune, it whizzed past all the usual stops falling and falling and falling 84 floors before coming to an abrupt stop somewhere between the 11th and 12th floor. One of the men on the elevator said, I believed we were going to die. We were going down, and I felt that we were falling down and then I heard this clack, clack, clack sound, uh, uh, and it was the sound of being trapped in an elevator. They pressed the emergency button. The six strangers, uh, including this individual and his wife, two law students from Northwestern, and two others, including a pregnant woman. Yeah, ladies. They were stuck in the elevator for roughly two and a half hours as firefighters tried to figure out a way to reach them. The problem was they were trapped in a blind shaft, meaning there were no, no doors uh, through which the firefighters could enter the shaft and get to them. And again, they were in that express elevator, and by express, it bypassed a lot of the normal stops. The malfunction had been caused by a snapped hoist rope or elevator cable. Other cables were still attached, keeping the elevator from plummeting to the floor. Finally, just before 3 a.m., they were rescued. None of the six were injured. And I find this last statement kind of funny. The building's general manager could not immediately be reached for comment regarding the status of the investigation. Now, when I go... Most of the elevators is over at the hospital, and uh, I mean, if it doesn't start moving in about five seconds, I find my blood pressure start 
You know, I don't, I can't even, I don't want that to happen. But, uh, and I, when I read that story, I thought, what a, what a, what a picture or a metaphor for life. Think about it. You're at the top of everything. Everything's going good. Well, just like at the top of this building, having a fine meal, and life is just sometimes, suddenly, before you know it, you're descending 84 floors like that. Now, thankfully, they didn't hit bottom, or they all might have been killed, but isn't that sometimes the way life is, that things are going well, everything seems to be going fine, and then all of a sudden, we find ourselves descending and hitting bottom wondering how in the world did this happen? How did we get here? How did I get down to this low point? Well, there's things that just happen in life. Life happens, doesn't it? Right? Life just happens. I remember years ago, I was at a uh, pastor's conference in Chicago at Moody Bible Institute, and a prominent pastor pastored a massive megachurch and uh, books and, you know, the picture of success. (coughs) Uh, began to talk about a time on a particular weekend, uh, Easter weekend. I think they would average in their church maybe six or eight weekend services around Easter because of the size of this church in Chicago. And he said about how he was sitting at the kitchen table and sandwiched in between these eight services uh, for Easter weekend, he had to do a wedding. And he was sitting at the kitchen table looking over his notes, and, and, uh, and this is what he said happened, and it really scared him. He said he began to just start crying. And he said what really scared him was he didn't know why he was crying. And he goes on to tell that how he hit kind of an emotional wall, and he said it scared him, scared him bad. He said, now, I was a, uh, always good at uh, being, he talked about how he was a very disciplined person. You know, he had a very disciplined routine of prayer and journaling. How many of you know if somebody journals, they are really spiritual? <laughs> I think my last entry was somewhere last August of 2016, and I'll pick it up. And I just, you know what, I just got free from trying to do, I just pick it, my kids are going to read that one day, like, okay, what happened between the year 20, you know, whatever. So, but, you know, he says he prayed, and he, 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 he said, I was, I was you know, let's, he gave it as like a picture of a gauge. He said, that gauge was good. Uh, he said, I was in good physical health. I watched my diet. <clears throat> I jogged every day. You know, I knew physically and diet-wise uh, I was in good shape, so that gauge was fine. Um, he said, but there was one gauge that I realized that I consistently ignored, And he said, and this is where the weekend, it caught up with me. He said, that gauge was my emotional gauge. He said, activity and things, now for him being a a pastor of this large church and all the things that are involved there, I mean, there's certain activities that are very emotionally draining. Now, you may not be involved, obviously, in that kind of setting, but it could be a tragedy. It could be a family situation. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a lot of different things, and what they do is, they drain you from your emotional batteries. The emotional stress just drains you, and what happens? Everything else gets affected. And so when here he was telling that, and I thought, wow, here's a guy that I would say is the picture of success and, and emulates a successful ministry and pastor and church and all those things, and here he's being very vulnerable and saying, 
guys, I hit a wall and I realized that I was neglecting that emotional meter and I was here at this kitchen table and I was weeping and I didn't know why I was crying. And he began to talk about steps that he began to take uh, to make some changes in his own life. And just like that elevator descending, there's situations, maybe it doesn't happen all at once. You know, there's things that just happen all at once. And then there's things that just drip and drab and happen over time. And you wonder how in the world did we get down to this place where we hit rock bottom? You know, the Bible does talk about, in 1 Peter 5.8, it does talk about how that there is an enemy who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the thing about when we are emotionally drained, when we are emotionally empty, we become vulnerable, don't we? We become vulnerable. We're weak. We're, we're physically weak. We're emotionally weak. We're all those things that, that we become vulnerable to the enemy's attack coming at us in our, in our life. And so what oftentimes can lead, and I know depression has many different categories and levels, but depression is a reality of, uh, that ha- hits God's people. And we, uh, maybe you grew up in a culture and, and, and a time where if you were a Christian, you didn't dare admit that you suffered with depression because they would think you were what? Maybe not saved or unspiritual or something like that. Uh, I've struggled with depression. There was a time in my life going through some difficult things, and just, you know, when you look at patterns in your family, and, uh, and, and it, it just, you know, it just, it just happens, and we should not be ashamed of that. But what we should be ashamed of that we're so prideful that we can't seek help and we can't seek counsel and, and the right tools that uh, God has availed us with. And uh, again, this isn't a sermon to get clinical in that area, but when we, when we have emotionally draining crises and situations in our life, stresses, we find that sometimes it results in depression, anxiety, fear, worry. You put, all, you put in the category of whatever fits, but all of those things contribute when we find that our emotional gauge is depleted. Well, in the Bible, there's an interesting uh, story in the life of the prophet Elijah. You've ever heard of Elijah? Yeah, he's kind of a popular guy uh, in the Bible. Elijah, so I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And where 1 Kings chapter 19 we pick it up is I need to just give you a little context uh, before we kind of enter where we want to go this morning. And we're going to look primarily at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, but let me kind of just paraphrase uh, 1 Kings 18, which most of you are pretty familiar if you've uh, had uh, some experience in, in the Old Testament stories. But in 1 Kings chapter 18, this kind of sets us up where we want to go. There's a big confrontation that Elisha, he was a prophet of God, and at this time, Israel, remember Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah the southern, they're split, there was a civil war. And Israel's king was, uh, uh, by, by uh, the king was by the name Ahab, okay? And his wife, I bet you know his wife, Jezebel, all right? Uh, don't say Martha, Jezebel, all right? And that was his wife, and she was a ruthless uh, woman. He was a ruthless king. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter uh, 16, you don't need to look at it, but it says that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all the kings prior. Now, that was a, that was a tall order for him to do that, but that's the way 
The Bible describes him as someone who did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. So what happens is um, Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, her father was a pagan uh, priest who uh, was part of this religious idolatry of Baal, B-A-A-L. And so she had brought in and introduced and cultivated idolatry, idolatrous worship into the nation of Israel, and uh, she was very uh, much a propagator of the worship of Baal, this idolatrous uh, pagan worship. Her father, again, was a high official, and so she was part of that. And so it reached a crescendo, uh, just to, again, to cut to the chase, where Elisha challenged the priests of Baal and said, look, we're going to have a showdown, showdown at the OK Corral. Uh, we're going to have a showdown, and that if uh, Baal is God, then we will demonstrate and worship him, or if God, Yahweh is God, we will worship him. And you know the way that he set the parameters to test it was this, that we're going to build uh, a, that whichever God answers by fire, that will be the true God. Now, if you read 1 Kings 18, you'll see where the, he let the Baal priests kind of do their thing, and they did all sorts of crazy shenanigans trying to call upon their God, which didn't exist. It's hard to get false gods that don't exist to answer, right? And so even you read Elijah kind of mocking uh, them, uh, you know, maybe he's on vacation. One translation suggests maybe he's in the bathroom. Uh, the Living Bible actually says that. I'm not making that up. All right, I'm just telling you there, all right? And uh, so he's mocking them. Of course, nothing happened. They went through the day and through the night, and of course, false gods don't answer because they're not real, right? So Elijah, you know the story, Elijah went up to the, and he rebuilt the altar, and he prayed, and what happened? Yahweh, God of Israel, the true God, answered in fire and consumed that altar, and I love, I think the old King James says it licked up the water. Remember, he had them pour gallons of water on the altar just to show that there was no sleight of hand or magic or anything like that involved. And so as a result of that, he had all those priests, those false priests, uh, he ordered, uh, now that he, uh, God had their attention, he ordered that they all be killed, all right? So it was a tremendous victory for God. It seemed like God was using the prophet Elijah uh, to move the nation back to truth and the worship of the true God, and everything seemed to be kind of reversing itself, and everybody seemed pleased except Jezebel. She didn't like this, so she put out a hit on Elijah. And if you uh, want to follow up on the screen, we're in 1 Kings 19, and uh, look with me at verses 1, 2, and 3. It says that when Ahab got home, I love that, when Ahab got home, oh man, you know, ladies, trouble was happening. She was not happy. Uh, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. Not only did God demonstrate himself by fire, showing who the true God was, but he had all these false prophets uh, killed. Uh, and it says that he told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. She got on her Facebook page and uh, sent out this, this message there. And she said this to Elijah, may the gods, little g, may the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. 
Look at verse 3. This mighty man of God, what happened? It says, Elijah was afraid and did what? He ran for his life. He fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, the Bible, I love this, James 5.17. I kind of sandwiched it into these verses. But James 5.17 says that Elijah was a human as we are. Say that. Elijah was a human just as we are. See, we think sometimes when we read these stories in the Bible, these are super gigantic spiritual people, right? And they could never relate to our problems or issue. Well, James says that he's just as human as we are. He was just a normal guy, but what made him different was he believed and obeyed God. But even people of faith, sometimes we struggle with being full of what? Faith. Sometimes, you know what happens? My activity on Sunday morning is to preach faith to the faithful. I need faith. You need faith, right? And so Elijah is just as a human. All right, let's get back to uh, uh, 1 Kings, verse 4. And then it says, Elijah then went on alone into the wilderness. Okay, went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day, And he sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might what? He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who's already died. What was he saying? He's saying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Have you ever said that? You ever said, I'm done? Have you ever said, I'm finished? I can't do this anymore. Now, wait a minute. He just came off of this mighty, powerful demonstration of God's power in chapter 18. And one little threat by Jezebel, he's ready to do what? I don't want to say he's suicidal, but he's basically just saying, just take me now. I don't want to do this anymore. I think he, in that moment, and we'll look at this, we'll unpack this briefly this morning, I think not only was he done, there was no fight left in him, take me now, God, I think for that moment in time, he hit rock bottom. You ever been there? I know your heads are frozen because you're religious and you don't dare move. That you, Yes, I'm, I'm going to nod my head, yes, multiple times, at least once a week. Now, I'm being facetious on that, but there are times in my life where I felt I had really, I'd been like on that elevator, and it was just God's mercy that that little slither of a cord was keeping me from crashing to the bottom, right? But I felt like just in that, in that moment, I felt like I, was, I had hit rock bottom. Well, this morning, I want us to look at some principles on what to do, what to do, and that's the title of this message, what to do when you hit bottom. What do you do when you hit bottom? Can we learn some things from God's Word? Let this be an encouraging word to us today. Uh, you, may not, you may say, well, I'm glad I've overcome that. Well, I don't want to be pessimistic, and I don't want to be negative, but trust me, save this, put these away, because in life, these will, these will recur when you will find yourself maybe at a place of Elijah where you just said, God, what? I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm done with these people, right? 
I love the story. I got to tell this. It's not in my notes, and that's always dangerous. But I love the story of this guy that on Sunday morning, you may have heard this, on Sunday morning, uh, his mother came in to wake him up to get ready for church. And he said, I'm not going to church today. She said, why aren't you going to church? He said, I just don't want to go. She said, well, give me uh, two good reasons why you are not going to church today. He said, well, first of all, they don't like me, and I don't like them. And she says, well, those are horrible excuses. And he said, well, you give me two excuses of why I should go. And she said, well, first of all, you're 45 years old, and secondly, you're the pastor, all right? So there you go. Had to throw that in there. Well, let's pray. Let's pray and ask God's blessing over his word this morning. Heavenly Father, encourage us through your word today. Lord, I know that, uh, Lord, that I thank you that your Bible, your word says that these, these are not just stories, but these are accounts in their historical truthfulness. They're also written and included uh, for us today to be lessons that we can learn through by your servants. And I pray that through uh, the servant Elijah that we can learn at this moment in time in his life that we can easily relate to and connect with. And so I pray, God, that you'll speak to us and minister to us through your holy word today, the voice of the Lord in the scriptures, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you just some, some principles here. I like principles because they're timeless. And uh, what, what do we do when we feel like we've hit bottom? Well, I think, first of all, let me suggest is this, is to review the practical. Review the practical. Sometimes we really want to get super spiritual, but sometimes it can be a physical or a, a practical issue. Remember what Elisha had just come off of. He had a huge spiritual confrontation. There was a, a very, uh, uh, to say it very lightly, I mean, he was just worn out. It was an emotionally draining, I mean, the entire imagine. We kind of read it and think, well, we kind of know the outcome, but imagine he's up there against all these demonic false priests, and he is up there by himself as a representative of God, that God, I don't know if he said this, maybe this is what I would say, God, if you don't come through, I'm dead. Now, we can smile at that, but I think some of you say, you know, God, if you don't come through on this, if you don't answer God, God, if you, if you don't, God, if you don't make yourself known, I'm a goner. I have nowhere else to go. And so, so here he is tired. He's, he, he, he's drained. And it seems as though everything is kind of coalesced in this moment. Look with me at 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. It says, then Elijah laid down and he slept under the broom tree. That's a desert bush that uh, could grow up to maybe 10 feet, had small leaves around it, had a, had a blossoming flower that was pleasant to smell, and he just kind of slept under this broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength 
to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Now again, my point is, is that sometimes the things that seem the most complex might, in some cases, have a really uh, basic and simple solution. What was the advice this angel of the Lord gave him? Rest, eat something, nourishing, in other words, replenish your body. Now, Jesus, we know, we won't turn to it, but there's occasions <clears throat> that we know that the Bible says uh, in Luke 5, for example, uh, where the, the crowds were always around Jesus ministering. Uh, do you remember the woman that, that touched it in the crowd, touched him? And I think the old King James says he felt virtue leave his, his body. There was something, again, that when ministry and the, uh, that, that's going on there with Jesus, that there was something that even when that woman touched him, he felt something leave him. There was something very uh, pressing and emotionally, uh, can I say, draining. Because we forget that Jesus wasn't half man and half God. He was fully, what? Human. Fully human. Fully God. And when Jesus was here, he was, he, was, he was fully human in his operation, not in any way to detract from his godness or his deity, but the power that he was demonstrating was power of one submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and my point in that is that Jesus, several times, it says that how he withdrew himself, remember that? He would, he would withdraw himself from the crowds uh, often to pray, to be alone and commune with God. Now, again, I don't want to psychoanalyze in between the white space, but I don't think it's heresy to suggest that the man needed to get some time to himself and to rest and to recuperate to continue in the ministry that God has called him. I don't think that takes away anything from Jesus. And so we see that here in Elijah. I read... Uh, <coughs> In uh, one study, a sleep study, sleep, you know, one of the, the uh, things that the uh, angel of the Lord told him was to rest, get some, you know, to rest. He was resting, and he, he may have not had any sleep. And uh, one, one uh, study, according to this division of sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School, said sleep deprivation is, knows to is known to cause chronic drowsiness. And that's proof on Sunday mornings. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but sleep deprivation is known to cause chronic drowsiness, cognitive difficulty, ability to think, weight gain, depression, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. It has recently been reported that lost sleep may be also contributing to high blood pressure or hypertension in many people. A study done back in 2006, Columbia University Medical Study, found that middle-aged adults who sleep five hours or less per night may be at greater risk for hypertension than those who sleep a full seven to eight hours. And I know many of you, because um, you've told me, you, you struggle with uh, insomnia and a lack of sleep. There's a difference between sleep and rest, right? There's a difference between, and if you can get those two together, that's a good thing. And see, as creatures, most people kind of uh, look at it this way, that we are made uh, body, soul, and spirit. A body, we're gonna, we need a body if we're going to be on planet earth, right? Bodies are helpful things. We need a body here. Uh, a soul sometimes is referred to as that, the, uh, the will the, uh, that is the seed of our will, emotions, or personality. The spirit, the spirit part of us, that's what's been 
regenerated. That's what's been born again. That's what's been made alive and new. The Bible says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in, in a spirit and in truth. And here's, here's all I want to say about that is that there's a close linkage between the body, soul, and spirit. Now, in, in maybe, uh, maybe my Christian background, we were really good at emphasizing uh, the spirit. We really emphasized the spirit, okay? Uh, and we didn't do a whole lot of emphasis really on keeping our bodies healthy. Now, we, I know we talked about, yes, it is warm in here. Is anybody warm? I see some people waving. I know we kind of are in that, we're in that moment of time where we're fluctuating a little bit. Sorry there, Eleanor. I'm gonna, I mean, uh, Virginia. I called you Eleanor. But uh, you don't want to see me uh, perspiring. That's not a good sight. Um, but we've emphasized spirit so that how we treated our body, whether we were overweight or obese, it really doesn't matter because that's the body. But the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Bodies are important. And thankfully, in the past uh, 20, 25 years, there's been a, a, a great growth of Christians growing in knowledge and truth concerning our diet and sleep and all those things. Here's all that we want to say, that, that this advice, or I should say advice, this counsel that God gave through this angel that we see in verse 5. Look, look at verse 5 should be the next slide. Look at these three things and how they're represented here. Uh, sleep, eat, uh, and, and spirit. It says, then as he laid and slept, right? All right, you see him sleeping, uh, getting his emotional batteries back into shape. Then the angel touched him. That's, uh, we could say that's the spirit, that, that our spirit needs to be revived. That's where I was talking about worship and engaging with God. We'll talk more about that. And then here's something really spiritual is what? Eating. Eat to the glory of God. How many of you ate Thursday to the glory of God? All right, good. I hope so. Uh, good. Amen. We, we did well. And so sometimes the need of why these things and these... Uh, these emotional strains and the depression, anxiety, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes there's a physiological connection to why we feel the way we feel. Do you understand? Does that make sense? And do you know that by experience? I know it by experience because there are foods that I could eat. I don't know about to the glory of God, but anyway, there was foods and buffets and things that I could eat that I can't go to now. You know Why? I feel horrible when I leave there. I'll give you an example. I love this Chinese buffet up there, but it does not love me. And after a while, when I would leave there, and I'd go in Hobby Lobby, and, you know, I would just feel this drain in my body. And I would just think, why do I feel so terrible? And then I kind of, after a while, figured, you know what? Those foods are not good for me. The sodium and all the stuff that's in there. Do you get what I'm saying here? This is, I'm not Dr. Oz, okay? I'm not here to, to and, 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 and you know, it's obviously I'm, I need to lose weight and I need to be on a better program trying to do those things, trying to cut out breads and sugars because I know how even those foods affect the way I feel in my body, all right? Don't just try to do, but, but have you found that to be true? That sometimes that the things that will help you most are just the simple things by getting rest, 
by getting some sleep, by eating better, eating, quit going through the drive-thru as your mainstay of diet, but start eating better and nourishing yourself. Those things are intertwined. And the reason I said that growing up in a background where we didn't, we emphasize you know, spiritual healing, and certainly that's part of it, but maybe the reason we're so sick and tired is because maybe we're not doing what God has given us in the order of creation to help facilitate our healing in our bodies, okay? I think there's some correlation to that, all right? Again, I wouldn't consider myself a health nut. That's, you can tell that by looking. But I certainly believe that we can gain more wisdom and knowledge in understanding some of these things that affect our diet and how they affect our mental state. Um, number two. We'll end there. We'll end there. Bags of lettuce will be available as you leave. All right? Secondly, not only review the practical, but reconnect to the presence of God. I love something, I don't have the verse, but when God told Moses to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses said, I'll go if you do what? You go with me. There's value. Even as we talked about worship, there's, there's an importance of being in the presence of God. Look with me at verse 9, 1 Kings 19, 9. And it said that Elijah, <clears throat> there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He positioned himself to be in the presence of the Lord. And he said to him, the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he uh, went on to, uh, I'm going to skip verse 10. Uh, look at verse 11. Let me just skip down to verse 11. Notice one of the things that how he connected to the presence of the Lord is he connect, reconnected to the wonder of who God was. Verse 11, just the first part of that verse, it says, the Lord told Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord, it says, pass by. But behold, the Lord. You know, there's something about, as part of our um, uh, getting off the bottom, is to reconnect into the, the presence of God. There's something about when we begin to engage God, not just in worship, but when we begin to read the Scriptures, when we begin to, to listen. That's why that series, uh, I won't have you raise your hands, but those of you who were in that series on Wednesday night that David Jeremiah did on the, the God you may not know, was each week for what, about 10 weeks, 11 weeks, was on a different attribute of God. It was great. It was wonderful. You missed it, okay? You missed it. It was good. And I know some of you uh, can't be here for work, but some of you could have been here, and some of you needed to be here. Why? Because it was exalting God, there wasn't a week that I came out of there with, without a sense of, you know what? God has got this. That's what we're talking about by reconnecting into the presence of God. There was rarely a week that, that I came out of there, whether he was talking about the love of God or the sovereignty of God, whatever it was in those subjects that he was teaching on that week, that I just, that there, if we'd had time, it would have been appropriate to have a time of worshiping God. Because you see, if, we're not, if our Bible or our theology is not move, if it's supposedly moving us to know more about God, you know what should be the most natural response of knowing more about God? Is to worship God. 
If our Bible study and our theology is not pressing us to worship God, there's a disconnect there. There's a disconnect. Reentering into the presence of God, he says, go out. Stand on the mountain of the Lord and behold the Lord. And in verse 12, not only reconnect to God's wonder, reconnect to God's word. Verse 12 says it wasn't in the earthquake or the fire, but the Lord, the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. And if you read that, those verses above, it wasn't in all these dramatic things of how God was going to answer and respond. I think Elijah, maybe the one of the reasons that he had this, this, this moment in time of anxiety and, and uh, is maybe, again, his expectations of what God should do and what God actually did were two different things. Some of us, if we're honest, we have been or are right now just disappointed with God. And I think, you know, where that disappointment comes from is because we have had our expectations not be God's expectations. In case you haven't figured this out, God is not obligated to meet your expectations about him. That's why he has the job. He's God. He's in control. And sometimes our inability, and people say, well, I just walked away from God. Really? First of all, you can't do that. But when people say that, it's like, well, or the implication is, you know what? God really didn't deliver on this situation, so I'm just, I'm giving up on God. Well, here's some news. God hadn't given up on you. He's still for you. Do you believe that? And so Elijah had to take some time where he had to connect with God. And I love that. You've heard me say it before. When he talks about it wasn't in the, uh, let me kind of go back. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm not sure, verse 11. No, don't, don't turn to any verses. Where it talks about he's not in the earthquake, he's not in the wind, he's not in the fire, but in that still small voice, verse 12. You've heard me say this before. One version, I think the New Living Translation uh, maybe go to the next verse. I think I have the New, New Living Translation, verse 12. Notice it says, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. Um, if we're going to hear the small whisper of God, the voice of God, where do we have to be in proximity, if we could say it that way, to God? We have to be close to hear. That's proximity, closeness. Look at the third principle. Not only do we need to reconnect to the presence of God, we need to reactivate our purpose. 1 Kings 19, 15 through 16, Then the Lord told him, Go back. <laughs> Go back and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel, the king of Aram, then anoint Yehu, Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, and we'll see more about him. There's Elijah and Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel Mehilah, you say it, to replace you as my prophet. In other words, Elijah, you need to get out of your cave, and you need to get back to work. 
There is work to be done. And one of the things that affects when we feel like we've hit bottom is when we have no sense of purpose. No sense of purpose. What is my purpose? What am I good for? The Bible says that where there is no vision, the old King James says, where there is no vision, what? The people perish. You can almost personalize that. When you have no vision of your life, that you're more than just collecting a check twice a month, that your purpose is more than just uh, is, is one, uh, I remember Geraldo said this, this is the point of life, is you live, you spend some time here, then you die, and that's it. If that's all that life is, and our culture that, that just believes that somehow we're just randomly brought into this world of existence, and that there's no divine purpose of God, there's no sovereign creator, then we can get a despair. But even still, as believers, what is it that God has made me for? What has God gifted me to do? What is God's purpose in my life that God has put me in this church, where God has put me in the body of Christ? What is it that I'm to do? God told Elijah, you've got work to do. You are not off the job yet. There are things Elijah, that you must do. There's jobs that only you can do. You have a divine assignment. You need to get out of the cave, and maybe some of us sit in the cave, but we need to get off the couch. That's our cave, right? And we need to get doing what God has called us to do. Well, that must, that, and that works. And that works. That's not grace. Well, Bible says Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you're saved by grace. That's not of yourselves. That's the work of God, you know, that we should, no one should boast. But then the next verse, verse 10 says that even though it's not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his what? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has sovereignly gifted us. And, that, and, and I know there's a time in which, you know, we spend a lot of time knowing your spiritual gift. But listen, you don't need to take tests. You don't need to do all this stuff. I mean, all that is helpful and profitable. But some of us have taken more spiritual gifts tests. How many of you have taken at least five spiritual gift tests in your life? All right, don't show your hands, all right? And the point is, is that you're still not doing what it is. You know, I found that what God purposes and anoints you to do is usually what you like to do. Isn't that real profound? How many of you found that if, let's just take a hobby, if you love, we've got some hunters and fishermen, uh, Bob Hafner, Hafner, I know, I mean, you know, he's a big hunter. You know what? You don't have to motivate him, right, to go hunting. He could work, some of you could work long shifts and work late nights, but man, you're going to get up in the morning, and if you got to sit up in a tree in a little box and wait for Bambi to walk, come along, uh, you and you'll get up there and do it. Why? Because you love it. Have you found that to be true in life? You you don't you don't need to be motivated. And when you begin to do things and operate with things in the church, some of you have a gift of serving. You love to serve. You love opportunities to serve. You don't have to be corralled. You just, you just say, give me the opportunity. I want to serve. I want to I serve the church. I want to serve the Lord through the church. I mean, those are the things that when we begin to function those things, that we begin to find that sense of purpose of, of why God has placed me in the body and what gifts and abilities that he has given me that only I can do, that only I can bring. 
Paul talks about that in uh, 1 Corinthians. He, he talks about the body, about being a hand and a foot and a head and, you know, and all those things. They all function together. Well, Elijah had a purpose of God. He had a work to be done. It was not finished. He had kings to anoint. He had ministry. Remember, he is a prophet that he was God's spokesperson. And God says, you need to reactivate your purpose. If you forget what your purpose is, what I've called you to do, what I've given you a spiritual motivation to do, you're going to fall back into the same depression and mess. Paul, this is always encouraging, because there was a place that Paul, writing to his son Timothy, uh, not the natural son, but his spiritual son in 1 Timothy 4.14. I'm not sure if I have that up there. But he had to remind Timothy to do what? He said, do not neglect the spiritual gift you receive through prophecy spoken over you when the elders of the church laid hands on you. What is he saying? Don't neglect the spiritual gift that God has given you. In another place, he told him uh, in 2 Timothy, he told him to fan into flames the spiritual gift. He needed a little kick. He needed a little motivation to reactivate his God-given purpose. Fourthly, Elijah, like us, we have to sometimes readjust our perspective. Look with me at verse 10. I'm kind of going backwards here, but I want you to see something. Earlier in chapter 19, verse 10, we kind of glossed over it. Elijah, as he's kind of complaining a little bit before the Lord, notice what he says here. Elijah replied to the Lord, this is earlier, verse 10, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. You ever felt like, God, I deserve to sit out for six months. I deserve this pizza. I deserve this long eight to ten hour nap in the middle of the day. I deserve this, God. It zealously served you. But the people of Israel, there he is. See, the reason I'm like is those people have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. And notice what he says here. He says, I am the only one left. And now... They're trying to kill me too. Pretty bad situation Elijah's in, right? Well, God had to kind of change his perspective because if you skip down to verse 18, the Lord tells him that he has reserved 7,000 prophets in Israel. He has 7,000 whose knees, knees have not bowed to Baal. We think God... Aren't you lucky? I'm the only one standing. I'm the only one in this church that's committed. I'm the only one that does this. I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not. There's a lot of things that go on here you know nothing about. He had to tell Elijah, I've got 7,000 prophets ready to go who have not bowed the knee. So, Elijah, get over yourself. Readjust your perspective. You ever find yourself whining about stuff, griping and complaining when you don't have the full picture. How many of you have, um, and I know Lisa would know this, but how many of you have uh, uh, myopia or myopia? I have it. Do you know what myopia is? Lisa, tell her what myopia is or myopia. Nearsightedness. 
which means I can see, I can read fine. I don't need glasses to read, but you all are kind of a blur. I don't have distance sight, right? So if you see me driving without my glasses, please stop me, all right? Don't do that, all right? Uh, or don't ride with me. Maybe I should say it that way. Uh, you, ever, you ever experimented with Google Maps? I love Google Maps. I've gone back to houses I grew up in, and, you know, you can start in space, and you just can zero in on your neighborhood where my grandparents lived and all those kind. Of, and then you can zoom out, and you see all of a sudden you just see in perspective, your little neighborhood and how it looks in the big picture. Well, guess what? God has the big picture. He knows stuff you don't know anything about. He has got this. He is in full control. And sometimes we need to readjust our perspective. And that's where worship and entering into not just worshiping God, but, but the knowledge of God. If you're not sure, read a psalm. Read about the greatness and the glory of God. You know what that'll do? It'll increase your vision of God and decrease your vision of you. Because sometimes when we are gripped by fear, our problems and our situations become overwhelming to us, don't they? But look full into his wonderful face, as the song says. And the things of this earth will do what? grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Have you found that when you take time to consciously get a vision of God, to look at God and begin to worship God, to read God-magnifying truths? Remember Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now what you don't maybe you don't realize is that I hope that's not your phone. All right. That's all right. It happens. It's happened to me. But in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uzziah was a king for like 46, 45 years. It was a crisis time in the nation. But what happened? How did his view of the crisis change? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. He saw the greatness and the holiness of God magnified. And all of a sudden, that crisis in his life and nation all of a sudden became somewhat different in light of the perspective of God. J.B. Phillips wrote a book years back called Your God is Too Small. That's a good title. Because sometimes we get overwhelmed and it only reveals that our God is too small. Our God is not the God that helps us to see things in perspective. God had operations and work going on that Elijah knew nothing about. And the last principle, number five, not only do we need to readjust our perspective, but here's something really practical. Receive Godly partnership. This morning at about 5 o'clock, I added that word godly there. Because sometimes the wrong partnership cannot be helpful. It isn't just having some friends. It's having the right friends. It's having the right counsel. Hello? Hello? Have godly partnership. Look with me at verse 19 through 20. I'm going to read 21. I'm going to read from the message paraphrase. The message is not a translation. 
It's a somewhat of a loose paraphrase, um, but sometimes it's helpful. And I thought here it was helpful. Now, remember, we talked about this person that God was going to bring in Elijah's life by the name of Elisha. Say Shah. Shah. Not Jah. Say Jah. All right, so we got Elijah and Elisha, all right? So it says Elijah went straight out, and he found Elisha, son of Japhat, in a field where there were 12 pairs of yoked oxen at work plowing. Elisha was in charge of the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak over him, which was that cloak or that coat was kind of a... Uh, a symbol of Elijah's prophetic office, of his, we might say, his anointing, his, his mantle, all right? Put his anointing over him. So Elisha deserted the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I'll follow you. He had business to attend to, and Elijah said, go ahead. But mind you, don't forget what I've just done to you. Go on to the next. I'm reading from the screen, so if you don't move it, all right? So Elisha, Elisha, he left. He took his yoke of oxen and butchered them, all right? Well, he couldn't just abandon them. He had to, basically what he did is he threw a party for his family. He made a fire with the plow and tackle and then boiled the meat, a true farewell meal for the whole family. What was he doing? Sounds a little bit, but what was he doing? He, he, was, he was relinquishing and... Uh, uh, liquidizing his business, all right? He got rid of his uh, tools. He got rid of his oxen. He figured, well, might as well throw a party for the family. He's basically cutting all his ties, and it was a true farewell meal for the family. Then he left and followed Elijah. Now, here's becoming what? His right-hand man. Now, what's the principle here? We're talking about receiving partnership, is that God provide Elisha to come alongside Elijah in order not only just to follow in his anointing, but also as a friend and as a companion. Here's the point, is that God has never made us to be alone. When he created man in the garden, he said, it is not good that you are what? That you're alone. Even in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a, a mystery in that divine, in that trinity, that there is a, combat, a compatibility of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are functioning in a fellowship as one together. God never desired us or designed us to be alone. In isolation, that's one of the ways that the enemy knows how to work on us and to take us down paths and roads that we might never go down because we don't have the godly relationships that he has designed us to have. That's why being a part of a church body is so vital and important. And so that's just something that, you know, you've heard me say this. If you read the New Testament, you realize that this, this Christian life, you can't do by yourself. We are made for one, even the very word Church means called out ones. Assembly, called out ones. It's a, it's a plural that we were meant. We are better together. We are better together and that we need each other. And so even Elijah 
as powerful a man of God as he is, as a powerful anointing of God as a prophet he had, he still needed a friend. He needed a godly relationship in his life. I love how Paul even said to the Philippians about Epaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. Paul, the apostle of God, said, Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who did what? Ministered to my need. Even the apostle Paul needed an Epaphroditus. We can't do this by ourselves. Paul needed a Barnabas, an encourager. Just sometime when you're reading the Scriptures, you ever notice when Paul opens a letter or he concludes a letter, have you ever notice how many people he's acknowledging and thanking? Quite a number. Paul gets all the you know, attention, but Paul's recognizing that God had put many people in his life to come alongside of him that were godly partners in the work of the ministry and in the Christian life. Proverbs 18.24, I don't think it's on the screen, but it says a person who has friends must himself be friendly. You know, as a pastor, I have a PhD in watching and observing people. That's why I know the brass are sitting over there instead of over there. See, I observe, you know, all the, and I observe behavior. I know those of you who slip out that door because you don't want to come by and shake my hand. I forgive you. I'm not offended. Sherry's not so forgiving, but I'm forgiving. <coughs> I say, hey, did you meet Sons? No, they slipped out. Or they saw us talking with people and, you know, they did the little two-step. I'm being, I'm being, I'm joking, but I'm, let me say this seriously is that in a church you do watch and observe people, and many of you who have become a part of this body. I was astounded uh, last Sunday. I think it was Richard Trices. How many of you, I don't know if Jim, some of the others, Sean, you noticed this too, when they said, how many of you have been coming here in the past two and a half years? I would easily say 80% at least. It's amazing. And, and again, that's the work of the Lord. It didn't have nothing to do with me. That's the work of the Lord here. But those of you who have come and, and are part of the church, listen, this is not a guilt trip, but I just want to make a point here. It tells me a lot when a person, and you don't have to do this. It's not a requirement of membership. But when, and I can point some of you out who, who do this, and I, and I want you to know as a pastor, I appreciate this, and I'm sure others do too. When you say, hey, by the way, I'm not going to be there next Sunday. We're going out of town or doing this or whatever. You know, because as a pastor, part of the things that God has called me to do is to observe the flock. I, 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 you know, if you are not here and you're not here consistently or you're away as your pastor, it isn't that I'm Mr. Control. It's just as a shepherd, I pay attention to those things. And so I appreciate it when you say, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm not going to be there the next Six months. No, I don't, the next uh, weekend or whatever. We're going away on whatever it is. You know, I appreciate that. That just, that let, but you know what? More than that, you know what that lets me know and what your, it helps your leadership know? We are part of this body. We don't want you to think we're connected here. And we want you to know that when we're not here, our hearts are here. But we want you to know that, that we feel connected here enough to say that when we're absent, 
our heart wants you to know that, that we'll be back. We're here. See? And so we need partnership with each other. We need to be people who are connected to each other. And if you're one who comes late and slips out early and you never want to put yourself in per, uh, parameter of engaging in meaningful relationships in the church, guess what? You'll never really feel connected to Grace Church. You'll always be on the outside, and then you wonder why you don't ever feel connected to the church. I mean, there are, there are more opportunities here for the size church we are. We have, we have a lot of opportunities to engage and develop relationships. The, the choice is whether you choose to do that, okay? And again, I would, I would counsel you, you can't do everything. But don't neglect the building of meaningful relationships. It doesn't have anything to do with membership. It doesn't have anything to do with religiosity. It's just the way that God has wired us. God has made us not to be alone. We need each other. We need friends. We need people to, to love us, okay? Right? Amen? Say, so that's good. That's good, man. You can preach that for an hour, but don't. No. <laughs> Let me close. I, I, this is a... This is a Well, th this is not a true story. It's just told to make a point. It's uh, an old legend, an old myth, but it makes a, a good point. Uh, to kind of modernize it, it's a, to modernize this legend, it's a legend of the devil who had a, we'll say he had a garage sale, okay? The devil had a garage sale, and he marked all his tools with their appropriate price. Tools like hatred, Envy, lust, deceit, lying, and pride. But separated from all these other tools was a rather harmless-looking but a well-worn tool marked at a much higher price than the rest. A buyer pointed it out and asked, uh, what is that tool? The devil replied, well, that's the tool I call discouragement. Well, why is it priced so high? The devil said, well, because it's more useful to me than all the others. I can pry open a person's heart with that, with that tool, and uh, I can do things in that person's life that I can't do with any other tools. Once I'm inside, because of that tool... I really can make them do whatever I choose. It's badly worn, and it's probably because I use it more than any tool, and few, few know that it even belongs to me. The story is told that the devil's price was so high that the tool of discouragement was never sold because he still uses it on God's people. Now, that's not a real story. But would you agree <laughs> that that's a choice tool that the enemy knows how to bring into our lives and to bring discouragement? The Bible tells us that Jesus came to bring life. And I love 1 Peter 5, 7. 1 Peter 5, 7 from the New Living Translation. Look at this. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he what? He cares for you. You don't think anybody cares? God cares. Jesus cares. So what are we to do? Give all my worries, give all my cares, give it all to him because he cares for you. Let's stand as we close this morning.